Isaiah 37, I begin in verse 8. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lashish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharavim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like the plants of the field and the tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in a second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, 
or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mounted against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. Adrimelech and Shardrazir, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esharhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Every word of God is perfect. Let his people bless his holy name. Amen. The ancient Akkadian kingdom of Assyria was on the world stage for 2,000 years. And for a time, the time about which we've been reading, it was the most dominant empire in the ancient Near East. It was used by God as an instrument of judgment against his rebellious people. And then, as we read this morning, it was judged by God for its own wickedness. Empires rise and empires fall. Assyria's field commander, the Rabshakeh, has heard a rumor that Egypt's army is trying to flank them while he's preoccupied with Jerusalem. And Hezekiah had not immediately surrendered according to plan. That's why when our text picks up this morning, he leaves his troops in Jerusalem and he goes to Libna for a powwow with his king. This is an excellent <coughs> instinct. In times of confusion, where else should we go but to our ultimate authority? What does the king have to say? This king has a lot to say. He says that Hezekiah's defiance will be his undoing. That whatever Hezekiah believes, whatever Hezekiah's God has told him, this king knows the truth. He is supreme. Verses 11 to 13 are a history lesson. Surely Hezekiah remembers those who have come before him. Those Assyria has already vanquished. Resisting the supreme king is always futile. Sennacherib has a list of accomplishments to anchor his self-confidence. He vanquishes foes without regard for nationality or religion. Verse 12, have the gods of the nations delivered them? Kings, gods, it doesn't matter. No one can withstand the supremacy of the king. Sennacherib taunts and warns Hezekiah about trusting God's promises. For those who do not fear God, God's word is foolish hope. And there's certainly no fear of God in Assyria's king. He is confident that it is foolish to trust anything God has to say. This is not to say that the kings of the world have no use for religion. They love religion. They'll tolerate religion in general because they hope that religion will produce obedient citizens. They're fine with your religious practices. You'll hear them invoke all kinds of gods in their speeches and pep talks. But earthly kings have no patience with genuine commitment to the king of kings. Because their authority must be ultimate. 
And so when something your king says conflicts with what this king wants, their patience for religion becomes quickly exhausted. That's Sennacherib's warning to Hezekiah. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done to all those who opposed me. Their resistance was futile. Their religion was futile. Bow the knee, Hezekiah. Everyone else does eventually because I am king. One scholar writes, in his own perverse way, Sennacherib is being helpful. He's clarifying the question at the heart of our struggle. Will we stake our lives on the truthfulness of God? And you know what? Hezekiah will. It's the difference between choosing Christ's life and choosing lives of our own. This idea that this life that I live is no longer my own. It's a, it's a choice of I will choose to live in Christ's life. The practical effect of genuine faith is that everything we do becomes tied to the truthfulness, truth, truthfulness of God. It's as if in every situation, in the back of our minds, we're saying to ourselves, this is what I must do. This is what I, what I want to do. Because what God has said is true. This is the only thing that that makes sense. And as we're trying to think this way, the kings of the world and the prince of the power of the air know right where to attack us to make our courage weak. Are you fearful about health and safety? They'll show you all the scary things that are going to happen if you aren't in control. Do you fret about provision? They'll show you how working God's way will never get you above water. These kings will claim only they can win the culture war to save your children. Only they can restore the former, more comfortable way of life or provide economic security or stand firm against the world's rising powers. Both on the big scale, at the level of our nation, And on the small scale, in our day-to-day lives, they apply the same pressures, and they're relentless. You must live for yourself. Of course, the part that they're uh, leaving unsaid is that by doing so, you're actually living for them. You're living the way they want you to live, the way that enhances their power. And many stake their lives on the conviction that what these kings of earth say true. But Hezekiah stakes his life on the truthfulness of God. And it's been encouraging to listen to if you've paid attention as we've read these texts these last weeks. He's growing in his faith. Just last chapter when he called out to help, he was still clinging this, this little bit of hope that maybe Egypt would come through for him in a bind. And here, relying more and more on faith, he just trusts God fully. His faith is now less complicated, more straightforward, because he's trusting God alone. Hezekiah, receiving Sennacherib's letter, does just what the Rabshakeh did in his time of confusion. He takes it to the king, 
Hezekiah lays his confusion before the Lord. And he prays. And he reflects on what he knows to be true. And if you look at what happens here, on one level, the things that Hezekiah does are for his benefit and not for God's. God doesn't need the letter spread out on the ground before him as if God's going to put on his reading glasses and try to figure out what's happening with these armies. God doesn't need to learn the facts of the situation. And, and prayer, which Hezekiah does, we all know prayer is not about changing God. Prayer is about changing us. Prayer puts us in the proper position of mind and heart. Prayer helps us remember our complete reliance on him. Prayer is how we get clarity in situations, separating what we want in the moment from what really matters most. Hezekiah's prayer doesn't even really need a response from God. He works this out himself because in his prayer, he remembers who God is. He's probably filled with a little bit of anxiety about the king's speech. I would be. And then reflecting on this prayer, he says, wait a minute. I know why the gods of the other nations didn't work. They're created things. They can't save anybody. They got burnt up and melted down. They were made by human hands. My God is the king of glory, the holy one of Israel. And so you could say that all this stuff is for Hezekiah's benefit and not for God's. But if you said that, you'd be wrong. Notice, God does not need the prepositional statements. God knows what's happening, and God knows he's superior to idols made of wood and stone and clay. But God does need, in the sense that he desires, the heart of sincere faith that turns to him in trust and expectation. Hezekiah's words are more useful to Hezekiah than to God. But Hezekiah's heart, which approaches him in a humble, reliant faith, staking his very life on God's truthfulness, that is all for the glory of God. This is the most important thing you can ever learn about your life. It's the first phrase of the first answer to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechisms. Kids, if I asked you, what is your only comfort in life and death? Where does the answer start? Say it. What is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. The most important thing you'll ever learn in your entire life is that your life does not belong to you. And in fact, that is our only comfort in life and death, that I am not my own. In a life of faith, genuine faith, cares about nothing more than making that point clear to everyone who sees it. Our lives are a testimony to the power and glory of a saving God. Sennacherib wants Hezekiah to believe that his life is at the center of the struggle. That's what the kings of this world do. They want us to believe that our lives are what's at stake. 
Look out for yourself. Protect yourself. Find your own personal fulfillment and happiness and satisfaction. Life is about me. But Hezekiah has died to self. He lives wholly and unreservedly to the glory of God. And that's why his prayer is not an effort to convince God to work out Hezekiah's purposes in the world. You ever prayed that way? I know you have. I pray that way. Hey, God, here's my plan. If you'll just get on board, this will be fantastic. But that's not his prayer here, is it? Hezekiah's prayer is a statement of humble and grateful submission to God's glory through whatsoever comes to pass. He can receive the future with open arms because he is entirely pursuing the glory of God and not some outcome of his own choosing. Oh, is it hard to pray that way? To really pray, not my will, but thy will be done. Prayer highlights the significant role that our faith plays in the working out of his purposes. The the passage makes abundantly clear that he is the king of glory, that his is the ultimate authority. I hope you heard in the text, God, laugh at the Assyrian king who thinks he's accomplished these things behind God's back. And God says, I led you up there and I moved you over here. And now if you don't want to go do the thing I want you to do, I'll put a hook in your nose and I'll drag you over. God is absolutely sovereign. His authority is ultimate. And yet, in the mystery of his wisdom, did you hear how this ultimate power was unleashed on the world? It's verse 21. Because you have prayed to me. Because you have prayed. Kids, do you want to know why you should pray? Because that's how God has chosen to work. I don't know why. God could do everything he wants to do without involving us whatsoever. But again and again, God shows us in scripture that the way he is most often going to work out his purposes in the world is through the prayers of his people. Judah's back is against the wall. One of the great armies in the history of the world has surrounded the city of Jerusalem and is ready to destroy. One of the great kings of the earth is ready to use all of his power to accomplish his purposes. But another king, far less great by earthly measures, staked his life on the truthfulness of God. His focus, we read it in the prayer, is God's glory and not his own. He wants Jerusalem to be spared. Of course he does. But even more, he wants God to be glorified. When our desire for the glory of God is greater than our own desire for security and satisfaction, we've finally found what we need to be safe and satisfied. And that's when we can be courageous. Courageous in the face of whatsoever comes to pass. People who trust in the power of earthly kings should never be courageous. True courage comes only from the understanding of the glory of God. 
That's the purpose of human existence, the glory of God. And when we get that, we're suddenly able to fear not the one who can only kill the body, but the one who can do so and cast that body into hell. The kings down here live as though they can overthrow the God of heaven. But the king up there has proved in Christ that he actually has the power to overcome the world. Notice that the outcome of Jerusalem's situation is essentially an afterthought in the text. It's the epilogue of verses 36 through 38. Just this, oh yeah, just in case you wanted to know. And what's the epilogue? An angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 miraculously in the Assyrian army overnight. (laughs) You guys, when it's kings versus king, the king of glory will always win. Assyria mocked and reviled God. She raised her voice against the Holy One of Israel. Sennacherib believed he was invincible, that no one and no thing could stop him. He was certain about what he was going to accomplish. He went conquering from city to city. He gathered 185,000 soldiers outside the gates of Jerusalem. My will be done, he thought every day. But I've heard it said that pride is the perfect blasphemy because it denies the perfect God. Verse 34, by the way that he came, By the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. The verse emphasizes the pointlessness of everything Assyria had done. All this drama, all this earthly power, this supposed greatness, this giant army, and he's going to return by the same way that he came, with 185,000 dead to show for it. Assyria leaves having accomplished nothing. And Sennacherib, the mighty king, in the temple of his gods, is murdered by his own sons. In the house of his god, seeking only the glory of God through faith, Hezekiah finds deliverance and salvation. That's what his god can do. In the house of Sennacherib's God, seeking his own glory as always, this king of the earth meets a pretty embarrassing end. What motivates God to bring about the whatsoever comes to pass? What if in your life it is for the same reason as Hezekiah's? Would that change how we think about whatsoever comes to pass? He gives a reason in verse 35, I'll defend the city to save it for my own sake, God's glory, and for the sake of my servant David, the covenant to save his people. What if your life is as it is for the same reason as Hezekiah's? What if your life is as it is for the same reason God sent his son, pleased as man with men to dwell? 
There is no what if. It is. God's glory matters most to God. And our salvation is all to his glory. Empires rise, empires fall, the kings and kingdoms of this earth with all their bluster, their purposes will not stand. Assyria seemed invincible, like something that could never go away. Sennacherib seemed like the great king of the world. Egypt had been before them. Rome will come. Empires rise, empires fall. Their purposes will not stand. But God's purpose is to use all these things for his own glory and for the salvation of his people. And Hezekiah's prayer, humanly speaking, changed the course of history. Assyria essentially exits the world stage at this moment. And why did the prayer work? such an easy answer if we'll hear it it's because his prayer wasn't about his own agenda it's because in his prayer he set aside his own desire for a personally satisfying ending he prayed for nothing more than God to be glorified through the salvation of his people he fixed his eyes on the unknown how God would choose to do that he doesn't know and he gets okay with that Because whatever comes to pass will bring the most glory to God. And that is what he is fully submitted to. It's a challenge for us. We really should imitate Hezekiah here. We should imitate him as he imitates Christ. You see the picture of Christ and what he's done? Jesus, though the king, the king of all creation submitted himself to his father's will entirely. He humbled himself in complete obedience and faith-filled reliance on God. He prayed, thy will be done. Jesus prayed that. He laid down his life, caring not about his own life, but about the glory of God and the salvation of God's people. And all of this is terrible news for those who want to live for the kings of the earth. Because it does reveal that God does not accept split allegiance. I don't think it's any coincidence that God does not respond immediately and miraculously to the previous prayer where you're still holding something back, hoping that Egypt's going to come through for you in the clutch. God responds immediately, massively, miraculously to this prayer when all glory is to God. Trusting God with our lips and Sunday attendance, yet living as those who cover their bases, those who need to have contingency plans, those who always have to be able to take matters into their own hands. I think this is bad news for us that God does not accept split allegiances. But it's also incredible news for those who truly want to live in security and satisfaction. Because God's greatest concern is for his own glory through the salvation of his people. You see what this means? 
This means that your unworthiness is irrelevant to God's readiness to save you. Because God's salvation is not responding to what you deserve. It's proving what a good Savior he is. Which king will be ultimate for you? There are kings of this world who think themselves mighty in power. They offer to save and to bless. They come to you in your weakness and try to capitalize on all your fears. And they'll even let you be religious. You can use God however you like if you think he'll help your comfort and your control. There is another king. One who will not give his glory to another. And yet one who does offer all who die to themselves the opportunity to partake in his glory by faith. God has no interest in the story that you are trying to write with your life. But he has an amazing part for you to play when you decide by faith that your life exists to tell his story. We had for a short time, but I was really bad with the wood glue, that verse over the sanctuary. We'll get it back at some point. It was from Psalm 63, where David is writing in the wilderness of Judah. He cries out to the Lord famously that his soul thirsts and his flesh faints. And so he writes, and this is the verse that we had, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. David, a king of earth, feared God, the king of the universe. He needed God, the king of the universe. And so he went into his sanctuary. He went to him in humble worship, just as we do. But listen to some of the other ideas from that psalm. They're very connected to this text. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you, for you have been my help, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. The king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. In kings versus king, David knew who reigned supreme. Christ is to us God's clearest declaration of his kingship. From the manger in Bethlehem to the gates of Jerusalem, the hill of Golgotha, the tomb of Joseph, the upper room of the disciples, and the throne of heaven, his glory through our salvation is the motivating factor for whatsoever comes to pass. He is king. And the gospel makes clear the only condition for attaining the benefits of that kingship to all who would receive him. God comes to us in the incarnation, in the gospel, in worship. He comes to us in the Holy Spirit. God comes to us and calls on us only to receive him by faith. We might think that's something we did at one time. 
That's not what this word means. It's a daily receiving of him. It's a dying to yourself, putting away your pride and your plans, growing in faith as Hezekiah did here. It's being ready to give up, to really give up the illusory safety and satisfaction offered by the kings of this world. It's in our times of confusion, turning first to hear what our king has to say. Everyone to be saved must open the gates of their hearts to receive him. And all of us who have received him yet need to open those gates wider still. That's what the picture of the Christian life should look like. We tend to think of it in terms of more and more and greater and greater obedience, keeping God's law more. That's the effect. That's not the cause. That's the part you can't really make happen. The part for you by the spirit to take hold of is that opening the gates of your heart wider and wider, letting more room for the king of glory to enter. Stop holding back. Stop carving out areas of our lives that aren't submitted to him. Stop holding his forgiveness at arm's distance as if it's something we have to further earn. We need to stop living in shame and in guilt. We need to open the gates of our hearts wider still. It's kings versus king. Open the gates wide, friends. The king of glory may come in. For he will do all that he said he'll do.